Good morning, church. Please join me in the book of Jonah, and we'll be reading the first chapter. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us, and what is your occupation, and what, where do you come from, and what is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he told them. Then he said to them, What shall we do to you, that the sea may may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let this, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. For the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Pray with me as we come once again to this great text of God's word. Father God, again, it is with great reverence that we come into your presence and approach your holy word. Father, it is with great gratitude that we come because you have revealed yourself to us and your goodness and your holiness and your justice and your graciousness and mercy and love you have revealed to us in your word. And so we come with reverent hearts. We come asking, Holy Spirit, be with us and illuminate to us the meaning of these words of God that have been breathed out for our profit. And we pray, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And we pray all of this in Jesus' great name. Amen. 
Amen. Well, last week, welcome back to the book of Jonah. Last week, we introduced this book as we learned who the prophet Jonah was, and we learned where he was from, a little place called Gath Hefer, up in the a territory of Zebulun in the northern kingdom of Israel, which is, which is near the town of Nazareth, by the way. Um, we learned when Jonah ministered as a prophet of God, the word of the Lord. He ministered during the 8th century BC, around the time of the reign of King Jeroboam II. We learned that King Jeroboam was another one of those evil kings in the north who did evil in the sight of the Lord, but that he was still able by God's mercy and grace to be successful in securing and expanding Israel's borders because in spite of his sin and the sin that he allowed to fester in the kingdom, God was compassionate towards Israel and he provided for them even though they weren't seeking him and living in faithfulness towards him. And we saw that God gave the prophet Jonah a call to go to the dark and wicked and godless city of Nineveh, which was in the Assyrian Empire and was a place where where idolatry and immorality and evil and violence and cruelty and darkness of every conceivable kind reigned. But God wanted Jonah to go there because, as the book will later reveal, God wanted to purpose mercy for the wicked people of Nineveh and glorify Himself by unleashing redeeming grace in their midst. And we saw that Jonah didn't want that. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He was probably afraid of what those cruel and heartless and godless and immoral people might do to him. He prioritized his own safety, his own comfort, his own security over the purposes of God. And as we're going to see later in the book, Jonah didn't like the people of Nineveh. He despised the Assyrians. He was prejudiced against them. And in the sin of his own heart, wanted nothing to do with being a conduit of mercy towards them. He ends up getting angry with God when God poured out mercy on the people of Nineveh. Because Jonah's heart was hard. And not just towards the Assyrians, Jonah's heart was hard towards his God. And so when God called him to be a light in the darkness of Nineveh, Jonah wasn't driven by the will of God, but by his own will. And so last week in the introduction, we learned all of this and we spent some time focusing on how how contrary the spirit of Jonah was to the spirit of God, to the spirit of Jesus Christ, which ought to characterize all of God's people. The people of God ought to be characterized by prioritizing the kingdom of God above any other thing, above all of the cares and all of the concerns of this world. The people of God ought to be characterized by faith much more than by fear. The people of God ought to be characterized by love and mercy towards sinners, and not by prejudice, and not by malice towards the ungodly of this world, because we were the ungodly of this world before the grace of Christ and the mercy of God and His love were shed abroad in our hearts and we were redeemed. The people of God ought to be driven 
first and foremost by the will of God in their lives and not by their own will and not by their own desires and not by their own ambitions first and foremost. One Old Testament scholar says, we may reckon it easy, sometimes even comfortable to live in God's presence, but to live in His service is much more difficult. And many, like Jonah, seek to evade it. So, like we said last week, Jonah is not any kind of heroic example for us to follow. Jonah, in God's revelation, serves more like a mirror that we can look into and see and expose any of the same kinds of tendencies in our own hearts and in our own lives. And and Jonah serves in God's revelation as a means to point us to Jesus who came into the darkness of this world, not to condemn, but to mercifully save by way of his own sacrifice and laying down his life as our servant. And as we follow him, God would work through the various circumstances of our lives to, to cultivate in us that same kind of cross-bearing and cost-counting and self-sacrificing commitment to His mercy and His kingdom-building priorities in, in our own lives. And that's what He's doing with Jonah. In so many ways, that's, that's what this book is all about. And that's what God is doing, not just for the Assyrians, but for the prophet. It's this same divine mercy that's at play here. This same mercy by which the Son of God came into this world to seek and save the lost is on full display. It's not on display in Jonah's heart. <laughs> it's not on display in the way that Jonah lives his life. It's on display in this book as God relentlessly pursues His purposes of sovereign, redeeming mercy in spite of, in spite of the wickedness of the Assyrians and in spite of the defiance of His own prophet. And so what we see is God showing mercy, not just to the Ninevites, but to Jonah himself. And we see God working in the, in the severe mercy of his divine discipline with Jonah to cultivate in Jonah that same merciful, self-sacrificing righteousness in the life of his prophet. Today we're going to look at the first 10 verses. I meant to get through the whole chapter. It's not going to happen. Surprise, surprise. Let's look at the first 10 verses today as we see God responding to what we looked at last week, to the prophet's defiance against God. How does God respond? You might be familiar with the famous epic poem written by Francis Thompson called The Hound of Heaven describing a man who tried to flee from God, but God relentlessly pursued him and would not let him go. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down labyrinthian ways. I tried to find any way I could to get away from him. Jonah could have written those words himself, right? But the poem goes on to make the same clear point that the story of Jonah proves, which is very simple, and it is that it's impossible to run away from God. 
You cannot successfully flee from the Almighty. So the poem goes, Still with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy came on the following feet. He's, he's after me and He won't let me go. And it turns out, praise God, because He's after us with mercy. God is relentless in His divine pursuit, and in Jonah, His purpose is mercy for the Assyrians and for the prophet. So you can picture the scene in your mind here. God had called Jonah to get up and go to Nineveh. And Jonah, as we said last week, his obedience stopped with getting up because he didn't go to Nineveh. Verse 3 says, instead, he went down to Joppa to get on a boat to go to Tarshish. But, verse 4 says, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break apart, to break up into pieces. So picture Jonah. He's made it to Joppa. He's made it onto the ship. The ship has made it out of harbor. But Jonah hasn't made it has he, at all in his attempt to get away from God. God hurls a storm on the sea. John Calvin explains that the, the storm didn't just come up by chance. He says it came up not by chance, but by the certain purpose of God. So that being overtaken on the sea, Jonah had to acknowledge that he had been deceived when he thought that he could flee away from God's presence by passing over the sea. Why? Why is it foolish to think you can get away from God by, by going out to sea? <laughs> because God created the sea. And because God is sovereign over the sea. And so it's utterly foolish to try to run away from the almighty sovereign God by fleeing into the sea. Jeremiah says that God is the one who gives the sun for light by day and He gives the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night and He is the one who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. And that's what God did here. Verse 4 says that He hurled a great wind on the sea. That's a strong word in Hebrew. That's a violent word in Hebrew. There's nothing nonchalant about God's providentially whipping up this storm. And there was nothing mild about the storm itself. This was something unlike the sailors, the mariners on the boat had ever seen in their lives. The winds were howling. The waves were heaving with so much force that the that the big cargo ship that was made for long open ocean voyages was literally about to be ripped into pieces. That's what God did in pursuit of his prophet and in response to Jonah's defiance. But please don't be tempted to picture God throwing a divine tantrum here. And blasting away at Jonah in a fit of unrestrained rage like, like you would picture some pagan false god doing. A lot of commentators even represent this storm as purely a product of the wrath of God. 
And of course, God is holy, God is righteous, God's wrath pours down from heaven against all unrighteousness. And Jonah's running away from God certainly constituted unrighteousness. And so God's justice and God's anger is at play here. But remember, Jonah is God's prophet. Jonah is one of God's chosen people by covenant. Jonah is God's child. And and through and through, the Word of God reveals that God is no less relentless in mercy toward His children than He is in judgment toward His enemies. It's mercy, ultimately, by which God is pursuing Jonah. What we're seeing here isn't God losing His divine temper and just flailing away at Jonah in holy wrath. This is a classic example of what Hebrews 12 describes as divine discipline towards somebody that God loves. You remember that wonderful passage in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6? The Lord disciplines the ones He loves. And He chastises every son whom He receives. Not to destroy, but to purify and to grow and to strengthen and to restore. When His children are wayward, when God's children go astray, when God's children flee like Jonah from the will of God, then God's purposes of discipline and chastisement are in fact loving and merciful, not intended just to punish and to make someone suffer and to destroy, but intended to bring them back and to restore them. That's what's going on with Jonah. And because it's true that God's loving disciplines and, and, and that God's chastisements on the ones that He loves are, are, are functions of His love and mercy, because that's true for that very reason, Jonah's got no hope of getting away from God, see? If God wanted to destroy Jonah just in a flurry of wrath, it would have been over just that fast. But God wanted to pursue Jonah in a way that would bring him back. And Jonah wasn't going to get away. God also wasn't just divinely indifferent to Jonah. It wasn't like God said, well fine, who needs you anyway? Go and see how that works out for you. I'm done with you. That wasn't God's attitude towards Jonah. Just happy to let him run off and happy to just wash his hands of him and be done with him. God was being a holy, loving parent, not about to let his stubborn, defiant, wayward, precious child go and be lost. Richard Phillips says, God's chastisement is a certainty for every one of those who belong to him, just as God's final judgment is certain for all of those who don't belong to him. Jonah belonged to God. Jonah was one of God's own. And the storm that targets the ship that Jonah was on in the Mediterranean Sea was was designed not to destroy Jonah, but to derail Jonah's delusional attempt to distance himself from God and from God's will in his life. The storm was designed to reel Jonah back in. 
Trust me, you don't want to go out there away from me. You want to come back to me. So brothers and sisters, God is sovereign, right? Over all of the storms in this world and of our lives, right? God ordains them all for some purpose. Some storms are ordained in our lives, not in response to specific sin in our lives. Sometimes God just ordains for difficult trials and tribulations and afflictions and hard circumstances to happen as His loving means of growing our endurance and our character and increasing our hope as we put our trust in Him and not in the things of this world, right? That's what Paul says in Romans 5. That's what James talks about even. That's what Job experienced. Nothing that was happening to Job was in a direct response to a specific sin in Job's life as a, as a discipline or a punishment or a way to correct that sin. But sometimes God does do that. Sometimes He ordains storms and afflictions and hardships and trials as a response to our sinful wayward ways. But again, it's not to destroy us or just make us suffer. It's to teach us the folly of our wicked ways. It's to teach us to put our trust in Him. It's to, it's to reel us back into Himself. To turn us away from our foolish ways and to train us to bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness in our lives instead of the rotten fruit that our flesh and our foolishness tries to cultivate in our lives. But always understand, Christians, if you belong to Him, if by His grace you have been saved through faith, if in Christ alone you are forgiven and justified, if you have been loved by God to the uttermost with that love by which you can now be called a child of God, then you can be sure that every single stormy trial that comes into your life is ordained by your God who is your loving Father and that He ordains them for your good. Not just from His wrath, but from His fatherly mercy to train you to trust Him and to restore you to righteousness and to help you to grow and to thrive in holiness. God is good. His mercy is often severe, but He is relentless in pursuit of your soul and your life and your holiness and your righteousness. Now, to be sure... God was sending a pretty clear message here, right, to Jonah? You, you can't just run away and think it's not going to be a big deal, Jonah. You can't just flout God's will for your life and expect God not to respond. You can't just run away from God's clear purposes for you and God's revealed will for you and expect there not to be any divinely orchestrated consequences. So that's the other side of the coin. God's will is never lightly rejected. And God's purposes are never lightly refused. When we reject God's will, when we say to Him, not your will, God, but mine be done. I know you want me to do this, but I will not trust you for it. It's too high a cost for me to count. It's too big a cross for me to bear. I'm not going to do it. When we do that, we can expect God to pursue us. 
And we can expect that His mercy may very well be severe. But we do remember that He pursues us because He loves us and He desires to draw us back to Himself and to His will. And that's what God is doing with Jonah here. Even in the severity of the storm that God sovereignly hurls against the ship where Jonah has hidden himself, Jonah is taught you can't hide from the Almighty. You can't hide from the all-knowing one. You can't hide from the one who's sovereign over the sea in the storms, can you? It's not possible. Verse 5 gives us a big clue as to just how massive this sovereignly stirred up storm was. When it tells us that the mariners were afraid, that's the sailors, that's the crew. These are the guys who spend their lives on boats like this every single day, day in and day out. They spend more time on the sea than they spend on dry land. And they were afraid and each one was crying out to his God. I, I spend far more time on dry land. I've been on boats. I've been on boats in stormy weathers. I've been on boats that were being tossed around so much that all the passengers, myself included, started to get pretty nervous. But the crew, right, the guys who work on the boat, they were just kind of laughing at us. They weren't afraid because they do sailing on stormy seas for a living and they've seen a lot worse stuff than anything I had seen that day. I was on an airplane once where right out of takeoff, just after the, the wheels leave the ground and the pilot throws the throttle forward because you got to climb quickly, as soon as he hit that throttle, the right engine on the right wing of the plane started making sounds like somebody threw a pipe wrench into it. And it started shooting flames out the back of that engine. And so they kept shutting it down and trying to fire it back up because we're not very high off the ground yet. And they've got to climb. But the plane's just porpoising like this. And it starts going back and forth like this. And everybody, the, all the passengers start screaming and crying. And I looked back at the flight attendants, right? Because they've been there, they've done that, they've seen it all, they've, they've been through stuff like this. But see, on that flight, the flight attendants were all wide-eyed and white as ghosts. Because they knew whatever's going on at this particular point, during this initial ascent, this isn't just par for the course. And they were scared. So I was scared. It turned out okay, obviously. The, the pilot whipped us back around and landed us safely. And, 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 the, and the biggest problem was finding another flight to Ohio and explaining to my wife why I would even think about getting on another plane at that point. <laughs> well, see, it's the same kind of deal here on Jonah's ship. The, the crew, the sailors, the mariners, right? They're freaking out. They're panicking. They've never seen a storm like this. They're scared to death of this storm storm that our sovereign God has, has hurled at their ship. So they start hurling things overboard. It's the same word, right? They start like chucking the cargo fast as they could desperately overboard. That's a, that's a big deal. That's an extraordinary measure when you're, when you're on the crew of a cargo ship. 
to get rid of the cargo. That's the whole reason for the ship and for your job. But you're, you're figuring you're going to die unless you unburden this ship somehow and try to help it survive this terrible storm by lightening its load. And that's what they were doing. And that's not all they did. They didn't just try in all of their might, in all of their ability to right the ship and save themselves from sinking. Things got so desperate that they knew their strength wasn't going to cut it. And their ability wasn't at all going to save them. So these pagan, unbelieving sailors all started crying out to their gods. Who was it that said, there are no atheists in foxholes? I don't know. I tried to look that up. I can't figure out who said it first. I know that President Eisenhower quoted it at one point. It's a familiar saying though, right? And the point just is this, that, that when things are completely out of your control, even people who tend to deny God in the everyday course of their lives end up in the most unimaginable and unmanageable trials of their lives. They end up crying out to some God. Probably a false God because they're still suppressing the truth of the true God. But they're crying out still because they can't deny the, the reality of God in every circumstance in their lives. Listen to Calvin. Calvin says, hardly any religion, and he means false religion, hardly any religion appears in this world when God leaves us in an undisturbed condition. Fear constrains us, however unwilling to come to God. Fear shows the folly of saying there is no God. Now there's only one true God, of course. All of the other gods of all of the other religions are false. They're counterfeits. They're imaginations that, that unbelievers invent to avoid accountability to the one true, holy, eternal, almighty God. But Calvin's point is that even all of those false religions, they don't appear in this world and in the imaginations of fallen people when things are just going great. When things are going swimmingly. When they're undisturbed. Right? When everything's, when everything's great, when everything's just peachy, that's when fallen people tend to worship the creation instead of the Creator. But when the creation itself is coming apart and roiling beyond comprehension. And when circumstances are raging completely out of our ability to, to predict or control, that's when people normally call out. Even though, even though in the regular course of their life they don't even give a thought to the God of creation, they end up suddenly calling out to Him. God, I promise you, whoever you are and wherever you are, if you get me out of this, I promise, right? Unending devotion and all of that. They're doing it blindly. They're doing it unbelief. Whoever they're crying out to isn't the true God. But the point is that even unbelievers in their fear end up crying out to someone above them, greater than them, even when they don't know or worship the true God who is. So that's what these guys are doing. These pagan, unbelieving sailors on this ship where Jonah is hiding. 
even in their truth-suppressing unbelief and their denial of the one true God and their hard-hearted sinful idolatry, they're crying out to their false gods because they know they're out of their depth. They know they need someone, something bigger than them and bigger than the storm. And in itself, that's a mercy for God to awaken in them a sense of their need for Him, even if they don't know where to find Him or who He is, which is where Jonah is supposed to come in. And so the rest of the story is amazing, isn't it? Even in these opening ten verses, you're picturing these sailors frantically trying to save the ship and calling out to their false gods. And by contrast, where's Jonah? Where is the one who knows God? Where is the prophet of the Most High? One true, eternal, living, almighty God. Where's Jonah in the midst of the storm? At the end of verse 5, he's, he's down in the deepest part of the ship, fast asleep. A lot of commentators say that the reason why Jonah can be sleeping during a ferocious storm like this one is because of how much stress he was under. How anxious he had been feeling with all the pressure that was on him to go to Nineveh and all the anxiety of, of running away and trying to find a ship and escaping from God's presence. I mean, that's a lot, right? It's overwhelming for poor Jonah. So no wonder he's so worn out and overwhelmed and sleep-deprived and exhausted. I mean, I don't mean to be too cynical, right? He has been through a lot. And surely he must have been utterly physically exhausted. I mean, he did, of course, bring all of that on himself by fleeing from the face of the Almighty. And I, I think any of us could relate, right? We could attest to how exhausting it can be to try to do things on our own strength. To try to, to try to say to God, no, I don't want to do it your way. I'm going to do it my own way and according to my own understanding. For the sake of my own ambitions, not thy will, Lord, but mine. That, that's an absolutely exhausting way to live our lives. So, I can understand as a fellow unfaithful sinner just how wiped out Jonah must have been at this point, fleeing from the Almighty and resisting God's strength and trusting in his own strength. So personally, I can get it how Jonah felt like he felt physically to the point that he's sleeping down in the, in the very belly of this boat while all of the unbelieving sailors are panicking and crying out for their lives. But listen, Jonah's not just a physical being, right? Jonah, like every other human created in the image of God, is an immortal soul dwelling in a physical body which is corrupted by sin and, and will one day be raised and made imperishable. It wasn't the condition of Jonah's physical body that's significant here. It's what's going on in his soul. Of course, he's exhausted physically but only because he's been fleeing spiritually. Of course, his body needs rest because his soul has not been at rest in the presence and in the will of his God. That's how the heart of unbelief is. We feel like we've got all that we need to make our lives secure and meaningful and successful. And so we tend to get complacent spiritually. 
We tend to neglect trusting God. We tend to lean on our own understanding. We tend to lean on our own strength and ability and accomplishments. And then in that complacency, that's when we're the most vulnerable. And that's when God is very often faithful to prove us wrong and to show us how inadequate we really are by casting stormy circumstances upon our lives to train us to call out to Him, to humble us and say, you know what, I really do need you. But Jonah wasn't in that place right here. His spirit was lazy. (laughs) O. Palmer Robertson writes, Jonah felt plenty of peace. He was sleeping like a baby. At the very time when he was running from the will of God, he felt that he had great peace. But was he correct? Nope. Was all of his self-reliance truly and actually a, a guarantee of real peace? Of course it wasn't. Jonah thought, if I do it God's way, that's going to be too hard for me to endure, so I better do it my way because that'll bring me more peace, more security. And God says, you couldn't be more wrong. Whatever peace Jonah felt was a mirage as he slept in the belly of the boat, oblivious to the real danger that was raging all around him. And again, the great contrast to Jonah's sleeping in the boat, right, in Scripture, is the other great story of a man sleeping in a boat in the midst of a great storm. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, Jesus wasn't in the boat on the Sea of Galilee in the midst of a terrible storm because he was fleeing from God or fleeing from the will of God. And the storm wasn't targeting Jesus in order to confront and challenge and change some some spiritual complacency and defiance to God's will in Jesus' soul. Now, in the Gospel accounts, Jesus was the Lord of the storm. And Jesus was sleeping in the boat because of His absolute fearless confidence and devotion to the will of God. Jesus knew the storm can't touch me. I'm the Lord of this storm. Jonas, he is the exact opposite of that. He's devoted to his own will. He's not devoted to God's will. He's confident in his own plan more than in the purposes of God for his life. He's utterly exhausted in striving against God and he's almost comatose in his oblivion to this storm that God has commanded and hurled against the boat. Jesus, on the other hand, right, was was perfectly calm in the midst of the storm. Because he is the perfectly righteous Lord of the storm. He knows, being utterly devoted to the will of his Father, he knows nothing can threaten him. Nothing can touch him. And so he rested, Jesus did, in supreme confidence in the will of God and the power of God. And so the danger all around him was no danger to him. But Jonah slept exhausted by his own self-confidence. And so he was oblivious to the great danger around him. And what a great danger it was to him. The unbelieving sailors, they knew they were in over their heads. 
They knew the storm was way beyond their ability to handle. They were crying out to their false pagan gods. They were, they were looking outside of themselves. But in their unbelief, they were crying out to higher powers that don't even exist. While Jonah, the prophet of the Most High, the prophet of the God who is the maker of heaven and earth and who stirs up the seas so that its waves roar, Jonah slept. Not resting in the one true Almighty God, but but honestly in his self-sufficiency, utterly oblivious to God and his purposes and his ways. So in verse 6, the captain of the ship comes and rebukes Jonah for this complacency. What is wrong with you? Why are you sleeping? Why are you not crying out to your God? I mean, this is a pretty significant irony, right? In the story, to have this pagan ship's captain crying out to the prophet of God to wake up and call on his God. This is what Jonah should have been doing. Jonah should have been wide awake and repenting and going up onto the deck and saying, hey everybody, let's call out to the one true God. But he needs the pagan to rouse him. It's a little little bit convicting, isn't it? It's more than a little bit convicting. If we picture this world that we live in like this ship that Jonah was on, being steered and guided by unbelievers and being tossed and pounded by the waves of divinely ordained tribulation and affliction, desperately in need of someone who knows the one true God to point the people in this world to Him and to teach them to stop striving in their own strength and to stop calling out to false gods and to cry out to the one name under heaven by which men may be saved. But all too often, the people of God in the ship of this world are just like Jonah. Asleep in the bottom of the boat. Unwilling to let the light of holiness and truth and the gospel to shine in the darkness of this world. Too afraid to represent God's truth because of the consequence that it may bring as the world may look at us with scorn. They may mock us. They may persecute us. Paul's words in Ephesians 5 summon God's people from slumber like that. Paul says, at one time you were all in darkness, but now you were in the light of the Lord. So walk like children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't just do what you want. So he says, awake, O sleeper, to his people. Arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Walk like you belong in the light and let the light summon others from the dead. That's not what Jonah was doing. So the captain of the ship had to wake him up. Meanwhile, the crew... Well, Jonah's being rebuked. The crew were casting lots. They were trying to figure out by by basically rolling dice who might be responsible for this great calamity that had fallen on them. And the practice of casting lots was a 
pretty common thing in the ancient world. Oftentimes it was like, like rolling dice to try to determine the best path forward or the right decision to make. Essentially, it was a way of saying, let the gods decide what I should do because I can't figure it out for myself. And it's even a practice that you see the people of God using in the Old Testament, sometimes according to the prescriptions of God's law. Saul was chosen as Israel's first king by the casting of lots. Who should we pick? They cast lots, it fell on Saul. Welcome, you're the king. Didn't go so well, but the priests in Exodus used something called the Urim and the Thummim, which probably served this same kind of a purpose because they rightly believed that the true God of heaven sovereignly controls every detail of the universe, including the outcome of the lots. And they're not wrong about that, right? In Leviticus and Numbers, the Old Testament law specified that under certain circumstances, the people could appeal to God's sovereign will by casting lots. Proverbs 16, verse 33 says, The lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. It's not random chance. Because He is, after all, sovereign over every aspect of His creation and all of history, including the most minute of details. There's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as chance in the universe that God reigns sovereignly over. Now, that doesn't mean that God's people in the New Covenant should still resort to the casting of lots in order to try to determine God's will for our lives. That's the easy way out. Wouldn't that be nice, right? God, what should I do in this big decision I'm facing because I don't really want to think it through too much. I don't really want to take the time to pray too much and put the study in to learn the principles of God's wisdom in His Word. I just wish I could roll the dice and go, well, that's how it came up, so that's what I'm going to do. It's tempting. It offers an easy way to try to know what to do instead of relying on the wisdom that God reveals in His Word in order to make wise and responsible and God-honoring decisions. Right? That can be a lot harder. But see, now that He's given us his all-sufficient word, in which he has revealed to us, Peter says, everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Now that he's done that, we no longer need to resort to casting lots or rolling dice or shaking up that magic eight ball that you buy at Kmart in order to try to discern the will of God for our lives. One of the things the very important things that God's Word reveals to us is a distinction in God's will between what we call the secret will of God versus the revealed will of God. This is based on the statement of God in Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 29. On the one hand, God has ordained, God has decreed every single thing that comes to pass in this world, right? Every outcome. He's decreed the end from the beginning, and so everything that happens in the middle has to go exactly according to God's decree in order to get from the, the beginning that He decreed to the end that He decreed. All of that's according to His perfect will, but see, God doesn't tell us all the details, right? 
He doesn't tell us all the outcomes. There are lots of God-ordained details that remain secret to us even though they are fixed in God's perfect eternal will. So Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, the secret things, all of that stuff that we're not told, the secret things belong to the Lord. And don't try to figure them out for yourself by rolling the dice and going, what does God want me to do tomorrow? The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that He has revealed belong to us and to our children. And the revealed things are what He's spoken in His Word, Old Testament and New Testament, such as His law, right? Defining what is good and bad and and right and wrong. It's His will for how we live. And He's also revealed to us His wisdom, in Proverbs, in all kinds of other places in the Word, where he reveals tons and tons of principles that we can put into practice to make wise decisions and choices in our lives. So it's tempting for us to want to try and make choices and decisions, see, based on God's secret will. What what does he have for me tomorrow? And to try to look into that secret will of God. Well, he doesn't tell you because he doesn't want you to know, because he wants you to walk by faith, and he wants you to use wisdom from his word to make decisions for your life that honor him. If there was a surefire, easy way to just roll the dice or cast the lots and lay out the fleece, right, like like they did in the book of Judges, in order to always know God's secret will for every outcome in our lives, then, then we wouldn't be walking by faith. We wouldn't be trusting Him for the things that we can't see. We'd be saying, I can only be okay if I can see them. And because God's given us His all-sufficient Word, which is full of all this truth and wisdom to guide us, that's what enables us to walk by faith and not by sight. And make wise, godly decisions based on His revealed will for our lives and trust Him for the ultimate outcome, I think this is the right thing to do. It's according to your wisdom. It's not a violation of your law. It seems to line up with your providences. You've given me a desire for it. I'm going to do it, but I don't know how it's going to turn out. Well, he does, and you can trust him. See? So ordinarily, casting lots is no longer a good or faithful way for God's people to try to discern his will for our lives because he hasn't willed to reveal his secret will to us. He's willed to reveal His will for how we live our lives in His Word, which is sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. But in this instant, these these pagan, unbelieving, somewhat superstitious sailors, they were casting lots, not because they trusted the true God to govern the outcome, right? But God sovereignly governed the outcome anyways in this case. And pointed him to Jonah and his sin as the reason for the great storm that was threatening all their lives. It was just providence. And so they demanded some answers from Jonah. Tell us who you are. Where did you come from? Of what people are you? All of those questions are in service to their main concern, which is this. Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. Which God is it that you serve that's responsible? See, they believe that there's many gods in the universe. And each of them worshipped a different one. 
And they're wanting to know which one Jonah worships because the outcome of the lots pointed to him. And so they concluded that his God is the one who sent the storm. And they weren't wrong. And when Jonah said in verse 9, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, all caps, right? Yahweh, the great I am, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. When he said that, they were all, it says, exceedingly afraid. They, they know about the Hebrews. They know about the God of the Hebrews. They know that it was Yahweh who led the Hebrews out of Egypt and parted the waters of the Red Sea and drowned all of the mighty Egyptians under the waves of the Red Sea. They know what this God can do with the waters. James Boyce says they realized, fearing a great fear, that this was a great God, this God of the Hebrews. And it was this God, not a weak God, who was pursuing them for the sake of Jonah. So see, now Jonah's awake, right? And when Jonah's finally awake, God is using him to wake up the unbelieving sailors to the reality of the nature of the one true God and to ignite in them a fear of the Lord. Their, their concept of God's tended to be, these pagans tended to be territorial in the ancient world. They believed that each place and each different people group, each nation had their own gods and that the stronger gods would sometimes be able to prevail over the weaker gods and that would make some nations stronger than the others. That's just how they thought that it worked, right? In all of their unbelief and their rejection of the only one true God. So in their paradigm, the Babylonians had gods and the people of Philistia had gods, and the people of Egypt had gods, and the people of Israel had gods, and so on and so on. Here, Jonah tells them that he's fleeing from his God, and that his God is Yahweh, the uncreated God. And he's not just the God of the Israelite people. He's not just a, another one of those local, tribal, territorial gods out there one of many gods from many places, Jonah tells him that his God is the God of the whole universe. Not just a particular place, but of every place. He's the God of heaven and everything that is beneath heaven. He's the God who made the seas and all the dry land. He's... he's transcendently, categorically different from any other kind of God that they have ever imagined. See, now, now that Jonah is awake, he's awakening these pagan sailors to the reality of who God is. And through him, God is awakening in them a proper fear of the Lord as the holy, almighty God who he is. And from that vantage point, now you can start to see the severe mercy and grace of God that's at work in this storm that he's sovereignly hurled against this ship where Jonah's sleeping. He's not just raging away in unrestrained divine wrath alone. He's uncovering Jonah's sin in order to restore a godly fear of the Lord in him, in Jonah, which would then pour out 
to the rest of the people on the boat. To start to open their eyes and awaken a fear of the Lord in their hearts as well. Are you, are you tracking with... This is, this is where this story is going. This is how our God works. This is how all of this translates into the world right now as, as well. And into our lives as God's people in the world. Is this world, is, it's the, if it's the ship that we're all on, is this world characterized by a godly fear of the one true God of heaven and earth? Is that what we can say is the, is the defining characteristic of the world in which we're living? No, certainly not. The ship of this world is full of unbelief and idolatry and godlessness, just like the ship that Jonah boarded to Tarshish was. No fear of God before their eyes is Paul's assessment in Romans chapter 3. And I think what this story, what these first 10 verses make me think is this, that it's safe to say in America, at least, because that's where we live, that in America, more and more and more, listen, a big part of the reason why there is so little fear of the Lord in our country and why that fear of the Lord seems to be diminishing more and more even in our country, why things seem to be getting darker and darker, a big part of the reason why there is so little fear of the Lord in our society is that there is so little fear of the Lord in the church these days. And what little there is, is fading fast. Church, capital C, not any one given congregation, but is the church of Jesus Christ in America, the evangelical church characterized by a godly fear of the Lord more and more or less and less? More and more and more, the church is asleep at the bottom of the boat. In general, the church is increasingly far more interested in, in appeasing the world and the desires and the demands of the world. We can live with that. We can all get along with your value systems and the things that you call good and evil, even though they're the opposite of what God does. The church is more interested in that kind of thing than it is in calling the world to repent and to bow before the Lord of heaven and earth and to fear Him and to turn to Him for salvation. Historically, when revivals break out, and I mean the real deal and not the, not the false ones, there have been both in history. There have been a lot of fake ones. There have been a lot of, of ones that aren't genuine. But when, when great, authentic, genuine revivals of the Holy Spirit have broken out historically, like in Jonathan Edwards' day, because it's because of this. It's because Christians start to wake up more and more to the reality of the greatness and the glory of the Holy God, and they start fearing Him more. Christians do. 
They start taking His holiness more and more seriously. They start serving Him more and revering Him more and reveling in His awesome holiness more and, and, and also in His unfathomable grace and mercy and love in the gospel of Jesus Christ more. And then from that, see, the fear of the Lord starts then to spread out from the church and into the world. Because people living in darkness see the true light. And they cry out to the great God of heaven for salvation in the name of Jesus because the fear of the Lord has struck their hearts as well like these sailors on Jonah's boat. It, it's got to start in the household of God. We can't get complacent. We can't get spiritually sleepy. And we can't become vulnerable to just being carried along by the currents of this world. Those who truly fear the Lord will show the world who the Lord is in all of His glory and power and holiness and grace like Jonah did when he finally woke up from his sleep. In a lot of ways, the church in America, the church in the world, has got to wake up and, as Peter says, proclaim the excellencies of God to this world in sharp contrast to the values and the ways that this world is addicted to. we got to realize that God uses the stormy trials and tribulations in this sin-cursed world. Not just as judgments for, for the wickedness of this world, and not just as a, a, a refining fire to train His own children, but also God ordains these, these stormy things and these trials and tribulations and groanings of this world as a, as a sovereignly divine means of, of awakening the world to the truth of who He is. The storms of this life are sovereignly appointed opportunities to proclaim to the world how foolish it is, how futile it is to try to anchor their hope to anything in this world. They are opportunities to show the world a hope that doesn't depend on anything or anyone but Him. Michael preached that several weeks ago from, from 1 Peter chapter 3, didn't he? Be prepared. As you live in this world, as you live among the darkness of this world and all of the unbelief of this world, and as you encounter trials and sufferings and even persecution... If your hope isn't in the things of this world, but in the God who made this world and in His Son, Jesus Christ, then, then nothing that happens to you in this world can ultimately shake or shatter your hope. And the world's going to see that because it is shaking and shattering theirs. And they're going to say, how is it that, that as you're enduring so much suffering, you can have so much hope and you can be ready to, to give a defense of that hope that's within you and say... It's because of the maker of heaven and earth who controls all this, who ordains all this, who's sovereign over all. He loves me. And He has reconciled Himself to me. He has made peace between Himself and me through the blood of His own Son shed on the cross, Jesus Christ. He's the one who forgives. He's the one who gives grace. He's the one that promises eternal life and an everlasting living hope. So Calvin says, let us bless the hand of chastisement 
seeing the grace that directs it and by it directs us to Him. And let us stand firm in the fear of our God and let us be bold to proclaim His holiness and His sovereign power and authority to this world. And let us be faithful to call lost sinners, not to just indulge in their sin because God loves us however we are, but to repent and to fear the Lord and to believe on Him for saving grace. Amen? Amen. We're going to have to stop and we'll pick up from here next time. But today, let's, let's pray to our great God and let's sing to Him. And then let's come to His table together and be filled with grace to strengthen our faith. Pray with me. Our God and our Father, again, we're so grateful for Your Word and for the grace and the mercy that it reveals to us. We're grateful, Father, for Your power. We're grateful for Your holiness. We're grateful that You have awakened in us a holy fear of You and that You have given us peace through Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, would You make us faithful? Would you help us not to be spiritually complacent? Would you help us, Father, to be the light of, the, uh, of life in the darkness that is all around us and to stand firm against all of the wickedness of this world and to boldly proclaim your truth and your holiness and point people to the one and only name under heaven by which men may be saved, the name of Jesus Christ. Father, help us to bear up our crosses. Help us to count the costs. And help us, Father, to glorify you as you build your church in this dark world. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.